It is good to see you this morning. Sincerely, uh, warms my heart. I'd like to ask you to open up your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 11 to 16. That's page 993 in your pew Bible. And with this reading and with this sermon, we're concluding our series on 1 Timothy. And this is what Paul is saying to his dear son in the faith, he calls him, Timothy. He begins, and it's noteworthy how he begins. He begins by saying, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Things he's just been referring to. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, I ask you this morning that you would make the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, I'm going to begin this message perhaps by saying something a bit strange, but, but it applies to this text. Some texts of Scripture are really not for everyone. I mean, I think of Jesus' words about, uh, as he was teaching about marriage and divorce, and he said, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. Or when he said in relation to his teaching, he that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Well, I think this morning's text is a bit like that. Uh, there's a self-selection uh, that goes on among people when they, when they hear Scripture read, read, and particularly texts like this. Because this text begins, but as for you, O man of God. You know, I mean, it doesn't begin, you know, not as for the others, but it begins with, but as for you. Paul has just talked about as for the others, their false teachers, their followers, um, who are so taught to be greedy and quarrelsome and so forth. And he's going to return to that subject after speaking to Timothy this way. But here, in the middle of his dealing with the others, in verses 11 through 16, he stops. It's as if he's turning directly to Timothy, directly to you, looking you in the eye and saying, but as for you, O man of God, or O woman of God. Well, as I say, people do have a way of self-selecting whether or not they're going to be hearing any particular text, and I think especially one like this. And so as I thought about it this morning, 
uh, I thought I would just um, ask you sort of where, where you're at this morning. Are you ready to hear a text like this and a message, you know, like this? And not everybody comes ready when they come to church to receive any text, let alone one that's so uh, forceful. And just an illustration of that, John Whitman, who's our church photographer, was taking a photo of people settling into their pew today, and, uh, and let's have the first photo. This is a photo, that's a photo of someone who sat in their pew. Now, I don't think they're ready to receive anything, do you? Uh, I really don't. And not everybody has ears to hear. Uh, John took another photo, maybe we can see that. Yeah, I don't, not everybody has ears to hear, and I'm wondering where you see yourself exactly uh, today. Uh, but now maybe we could have the last slide and just leave that up there. You see the scripture, the earbuds speak, O Lord, and I am listening. Young Samuel spoke these words virtually when the Lord had began speaking to him. That was Samuel's response. And then God placed on Samuel this amazing title, this honorific title. He called him man of God. And this was only the second time in the scripture to that point where God ever placed that, that title, gave anyone that honor. He, he'd first given it to, to Moses. Um, so for God to single Timothy out or single you out as a man of God or as a woman of God, that's very high praise. And it really is a deep challenge. And I want us to think for a moment, as we get into this text, what is it, what sets the man of God or the woman of God apart? What sets the man or woman of God apart from the others? And first and foremost, the answer is that they receive the word of God just as they would receive God himself. They receive the word of God just as they would receive God himself. They receive it. They don't just believe that it is true. They believe that it is really from God. They believe that it is for them. In fact, they believe that it has been given to them. And it's been given to them in this sense that it has been entrusted to them. He has, if, if God in his providence gives you his word and teaches you his word, and your word, his word is before you, he has given that to you in a way so as to entrust you with it. And the man of God or the woman of God looks at the word of God that way. This is entrusted to me. And in keeping it, in loving it, they're loving God. And that's why they love it. Because they love God. Psalm 119 is the longest chapter of the Bible, as you know. It's 176 verses. (laughs) Imagine a hymn in our hymnal of 176 verses, and yet this is a song, Psalm 119, and it's David's hymn of love for God's Word. Why? Because it's God's Word. God's Word. And in keeping it, he's found his life. In defending and proclaiming it, he's, he's found his place in the world. He is a man of God. He is God's man. And that's Psalm David said at one point, it is the word of God. 
Oh, how I love your law. How I love it. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies. It is ever with me. And so there's this, this idea of being a man of God or a woman of God. It sets you apart. And that is that when you see the Word of God, when it's given to you, you realize it has been entrusted to you. And the man of God then accepts responsibility for that. It's more than a personal code of conduct for a man of God. And you see that in this passage. Paul follows up his charge, uh, follows up with a, a charge to Timothy. Um, he see, you see this in the conclusion in chapter 6, verse 20. O Timothy, he says, guard the deposit entrusted to you. And that's what the, how the mind of God views the word about, as a deposit that's been entrusted to him or to her for a period of time. In order to hold on to it, yes, but to give it away also, to entrust it to others who will be, who will be faithful. It is a deposit. It is like a vault of gold. It is guarded. It is loved. It is cherished. It is treasured. And it is passed on. And the man of God realizes that he or she has been entrusted with this and how important it is because if this does not happen, it will be lost. He said, well, how can the word of God, how can God's word, how can, the, how can the teaching of Christ, how can the apostolic instruction, how can all of the, the older and prior instruction that has been fulfilled in Christ, how can that possibly be, be lost? There are Bibles everywhere. You lose your Bible, you just, you just pick up another one. Yes, that's true. But if people don't know about it, why would they pick it up? To lose something is to forget it. So to you, it is no more. This is the way we use the word all the time in our houses. Is it true? When you lose something, what does that mean? You say, what you mean is you forgot where you put it. That's what it means. You forgot about it. Sure. So it's entrusted, the man of God, woman of God, sees that it's entrusted to them, that, uh, and they have received it in that way, and they have then accepted responsibility for it. You know, 13 times in the Old Testament, you find this phrase, at least in the older translations, like King James, the burden of the Lord. And this was used of revelations that were given to the prophets. And you wonder, well, why in the world was this called the burden of the Lord? And in your modern translations, like your ESV, that word is not translated burden. It is translated the oracle of the Lord. But I want to tell you that that Hebrew word literally means a load or a burden. Literally. The same word was used to describe the load of equipment, the tent frames, the tent cords, the tent pegs, and the other paraphernalia that had to be carried wherever the tabernacle moved. It was the, it was the stuff of the tabernacle. So it, it was a load that had to be carried. It was a load of stuff necessary to build the tabernacle. Again and again in the desert, 
from Numbers chapter 4. You see the idea behind the burden of the Lord. The word is the burden of the Lord. The prophets were to carry that load, carry that burden of responsibility with them so it would not be lost. It was given to them. Those prophets were raised up at a time when most of Israel had totally forgotten the word of God. And that's why they were given it. That's why the prophets were raised up. So a man of God, a woman of God, recognizes that the, the word of God has been entrusted to them. It is a responsibility for them. It is a load that they are to carry, a burden that they are to carry in their life. And I'm going to say Timothy was faced with the same situation in Ephesus that the prophets were faced with in the Old Testament. Because there were false teachers there. The people did not, they did not understand. And on how much of the church of Christ today is this true? They did not understand that to disregard God's word as it had been given was to disregard God himself. So Paul's placing this burden, this load of responsibility on Timothy. And I want to underscore, if you wonder, well, where is that in our passage today? It's the heart of our passage. Because after Paul gave Timothy his threefold commandment, which we'll turn to momentarily, he followed that with this word in verses 13 and 14. He said, I charge you. Timothy, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free of reproach. I've just, I have just given you a commandment. It's tripartite. It's comprised of three things. And I'm commanding, I'm charging you now to keep it without stain or reproach. You know that word, our English word charge, is just like the Hebrew word for burden. Originally, a charge, a noun, a charge was a two-wheeled cart that was used to carry a load. And so as that term became a verb, it was used of placing a burden or a load of responsibility on someone. So in a positive sense, people might be charged with some noble mission. Or in a negative sense, people might be charged with a crime. The burden of responsibility, face lays upon them. This idea of charge and load, you electricians know about that. Because when you talk about electricity, what's the load on the line? What's the charge on the line? It's one and the same. That's the origin of the word. Paul is putting a responsibility very deliberately, very intentionally, and explicitly when you understand the language on Timothy. So what was this burden? What was this command that Paul charges Timothy to keep? That is laid upon any man of God. That laid upon any woman of God. And the first of these is in verse 11. He says, flee these things. And he's just talked about the lust for power, the lust for money, distorted teaching, quarrelsomeness. He says, flee these things and pursue, in other words, pursue instead, 
righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. In other words, what Paul is saying to Timothy is this. Make it very, very simple. He's saying, Timothy, don't give in. Don't give in to the world with its distortions. Don't do that. Don't give in to your flesh with its lusts. Do not give in. Do not give in to the devil who's behind every temptation you face in your life. Be it emotional, be it intellectual, be it relational, or be it some existential crisis. He's behind every temptation to deny the truth. Do not give in to the devil. It just doesn't matter what we're talking about. Whether we're talking about what you believe or how you're living. Don't give in. Do not give in. Paul's language here is interesting, of fleeing and pursuing. They go together. This language of fleeing and pursuing is the language of the hunted and the hunter. And Paul's saying to Timothy, look, do not be ensnared. Don't be hunted. Be the hunter. Pursue what is right and just. Pursue it, righteousness. Pursue what is Christ-like, godliness. Prove yourself to be trustworthy. That's faith or faithfulness. Committed to the good of others. Committed to the church's good, to the kingdom of God. That is to love. Pursue patience, though you're in hard circumstances. That is steadfastness. Pursue patience patience with difficult people. That That is gentleness. Pursue, pursue. Do not be the hunted. Be the hunter. Don't be ensnared. Pursue. Flee from that snare. Pursue. You have something to go after. Don't give in. And I just remind you this morning, you know, when you think about this, any hard thing you face in life is temporary. And every good thing that you pursue carries with it the promise of eternal reward. It's true. It matters. And when you see Christ face to face, you will know immediately how true that was. So Paul's saying flee from what distracts you or what ruins you so you can't pursue what is really life indeed. And I just want to say life lesson here. When I say to you any hard thing you face is temporary, I really mean that. Now, when we're going through very hard things, they don't seem temporary. But they are temporary. And you go up to anybody who's lived 70 or 80 or 90 years and you ask them if that's true. And they will tell you that is true. That is what they have learned. They have learned it. They don't just know it in their head. They've learned it in their life. And that God has been faithful to me. The second thing that Paul says to Timothy, besides flee and pursue, is in verse 12. He says, fight the good fight of the faith. In other words, don't give in. And now he's saying, don't give up. 
you fight the good fight of the faith. And the faith refers to the truth of the gospel. The truth of Christ, what Jesus taught. It refers to the apostolic teaching. It refers, as I mentioned earlier, to all those earlier scriptures which have been fulfilled, which we know are true. Fight the good fight of the faith. You know, don't give in refers to evil and good. Don't give in to evil. Don't give up refers to matters of truth and error. Do not give them up. And I say to you, in all honesty, the, the only reason to abandon the truth is in order to accept error rather than fight it. That's it. And Paul says, fight the good fight. And both the noun and the verb forms fight the good fight. They're the basis for our word agony. This is used of a muscled wrestler grappling with another muscled wrestler. It's also used of a fierce soldier in hand-to-hand combat, mortal combat with another soldier. He's saying, fight that fight. And I'm going to say, honestly, you think about all the armor, all the weaponry God has given us to fight the good fight. You know, think of Ephesians 6, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of of righteousness, our justification in Christ. We are accepted with God. We are forgiven. The sword of the Holy Spirit and so much more. When you think about all of God's provisions for us, again, you realize that the only way that the devil can defeat you, the enemy, any enemy can defeat you, is to get you to give up. No enemy, no enemy of the truth, spiritual, human No enemy of the truth wants to turn you into a martyr, believe me. What the enemies of the truth want to do is they want to make you lose heart so you give up. And when that does happen, it's not because the weight of responsibility of the truth has been too much for us. I mean, honestly, I think when Jesus said it, uh, it applies here. I mean, really, his yoke is easy. His load is light. I mean, honestly. Compared with the garbage that people have to carry because of sin in the world, it's light. But when we do give up, it's because of sin that so easily has clung to us and the encumbrances that have dragged us down so we drop out of the race. And it is a race. Yet in the middle of that race and all the challenges you face is the writer of Hebrews puts out, points out, and folks, when you're in the middle of it, please look at the finish line and look at him who stands at the finish line with open arms waiting for you, who's run it before you, who endured so much more than you'll ever have to endure. It's Christ who waits for you. So shake those encumbrances off. Set aside the sin that so easily binds you up and clings to you. And the third thing that he says is in verse 12. He says, take hold of the eternal life to which you are called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So he said to us, and I'm using this, of course, very um, 
sort of abbreviated way to help us remember. But he said to us, don't give in. He said to us, don't give up. And now what he's really saying to us is, don't give out. Don't give out. Take hold of the eternal life. Don't give out. You know, from the first, when we confessed Christ, we pledged ourselves to him. Because he had taken the worst from us, we pledged to give our best to him. And we make that commitment in the presence of many, of many witnesses at our baptism or elsewhere. We take vows. We take vows to be committed to Christ with all of our heart, to serve him. We take very serious vows. He's lifted the worst. He's taken the worst away from us. We pledge our best to him. We love him. We're so grateful. We'll give him our best. And that's important. Remember, Jesus in his ministry, what did he do when he was teaching to his disciples? What did he say to them? He warned them. He told them. He said, you count the cost. It's not easy. He warned trials will come. And he modeled that in his own life. He taught, he taught that this following of him, being Christ's disciple, requires... It means loving him with all your heart, all your strength, all your mind. And he promised there would be suffering. Well, here's another life lesson to think about. You know, you probably had this experience. You're driving a car and, you know, you got your foot in on the accelerator a little bit. And you come to a hill. You're going 20 miles an hour. And you say, well, I'm going to, whatever, I'm going to save gasoline or something. So I just leave my foot at the same point at the accelerator where, where it is. I've been doing okay. And, and, and you start going up the hill and the car slows down. But that's okay. I'm not in a hurry. And then the car slows down more. Well, that's okay. I'm not in a hurry. And then the car comes to a stop. It's in drive. Your foot's on the accelerator. But the, the car has come to a stop. Some of you experience the same thing. When you're running and you're jogging, you're running along, you come to a hill, you go, oh, I can make this. I'll just take my time. So you don't put more energy into it. You slow down. But it's okay. I'm just going to take my time. And after a couple of minutes, what happens? Whew, this is really hard. I want to give up. I want to give up. And what I want to say to you is that there are races. There are, there are inclines we need to get up and over that... If you don't, from the outset, if you're not resolved to give it your best, you won't make it over. You might think you'd be half-hearted about it. You won't make it over. You need to pour on the momentum from the beginning, and you need to keep the momentum going on, and that is the only way you're going to persevere over that ridge. That's the only way. And that is the Christian life. That is the Christian life. So Paul's saying to, to Timothy, who was discouraged and, and felt kind of beat down, look, take hold of the eternal life to which you're called. Man, don't give in. Don't give up. Don't give out. And then we come to this lastly. Along with this charge, as a man of God, or as a woman of God, which is really a reminder, isn't it? And what Paul's doing is he's incentivizing Timothy. He's encouraging Timothy. I don't think 
Paul told Timothy anything here that Timothy didn't already know. I doubt for many of you, I've said one thing to you this morning that you do not already know. We need encouragement. We need to be admonished and encourage each other. So along with that charge to be that man or woman of God, the apostle underscores what I believe, what I'm sure, was his own personal greatest incentive when he found himself in hard places. What did Paul think about when he was himself in a hard place? What helped sustain him? What did he look to? And very clearly from what Paul said to Timothy, it was this, that Paul knew that one day he would see Christ for who he is. For who he is. He was going to stand before Christ and see his Savior in all of his goodness and all of his glory. He knew that in that day he would know, as you will know also, just how worthy he is. And you'll realize what an honor it was that he would have tasked us with any responsibility. That he would put any kingdom burden upon us. That he would have entrusted that to us. What an honor and a privilege that is. That he would do that for us. That he would not regard us as his slaves, but as his friends, as his brother. What personal incentive really could be greater? But to know that Christ who charges us to be a man of God, to be a woman of God, he is going to come for us. He's going to come for us in his glory. Paul calls him the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. That's one breath. We'll see him. We'll see that that is who he is. That he is the one who deserves to be and who is invincible. Who alone has immortality. He is the one and he is the only. We will see it who will never be less than he is, and whom to know is eternal life, who dwells in unapproachable light. He is the one who is beyond the reach of corruption, triumphant over every evil in its every expression, could never be undone by evil. And he is the one whom no one has ever seen or can see. He is the one whom our mind and our 